Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the Harvard Legal Aid Bureau's Alumni Spotlight Series. My guest today is Tim Visser, who is currently a trial attorney in the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Perhaps you can just give a brief introduction of the year that you graduated from Harvard Law School and your current job. Sure. So I graduated um, from HLS in 2013, and I'm currently a um, criminal civil rights prosecutor. So I work as a federal prosecutor, um, kind of going around the country working on civil rights cases, mostly kind of police misconduct, excessive force cases, and hate crimes. And what made you want to be a a federal prosecutor, a trial attorney at DOJ? Yeah, I think for me, it's frankly, it's more of a substantive area thing than a, you know, being a federal prosecutor. Uh, my role is very, very, very different than most federal prosecutors, um, you know, who, who may be kind of local AUSAs working on a variety of cases. I am only working on civil rights cases nationwide. So I think having the opportunity to use, um, frankly, the federal criminal law and deal with issues of police misconduct, excessive force, you know, hate crimes, issues that I really, really care about, um, and to do it across the entire country, you know, there, there are, uh, it's a real true privilege to uh, be able to do that. Can you describe a little bit about the day-to-day of your job? Sure. So, so one of the things that is amazing about this job is there is really no, um, you know, every day is incredibly different. Um, I've literally worked cases from Portland, Maine to Honolulu, Hawaii, and several states in between. Uh, I handle kind of all aspects of a criminal case from, you know, directing the FBI and doing investigations and getting on the ground and and doing knock and talks on people's doors to start finding out what happened to running kind of long-term complex grand jury investigations to indicting a case to taking it through trial, through sentencing, and, and to the appeal. So it can look very, very, very different. On one day, I may be sitting in grand jury trying to flip a police officer and get him to, you know, for lack of a better term, rat on a partner. The next day, I may be speaking to the victim of a hate crime. The next day, I may be, you know, writing a memo to the front office about why we should charge a hate crime. So so it's an incredibly diverse um, amount of stuff that we get to do. I'm wondering if HLAB in any way prepared you for this role and sort of the transition from legal aid to now on a broader scale and, and criminal scale working in the civil rights division at DOJ? That's a good question. I mean, I think there's some some clear parallels. There's some that maybe are a little less applicable. I think one that, that immediately jumps out is just kind of working across lines of difference. I mean, I think about being kind of like you know, a, a Ivy League law student at Harvard and knocking on someone's door with Project No One Leaves and just trying to get them to trust me that I'm going to have their best interests at heart, um, even though, you know, I think they, they probably fairly can make lots of assumptions about me. Um, that is very similar to, you know, getting off the plane as a Washington, D.C. lawyer in, you know, take Southwest Louisiana and trying to get every single person around me, whether it's a victim, you know, a skeptical FBI agent, um, a U.S. attorney to to get on board with what we're doing, just kind of building that trust across lines of very significant difference, both kind of, you know, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, geographically. Um, I, 
think I learned a lot in HLAB uh, that is directly applicable to that. And then something else I think that may be less obvious is the, the work I do um, certainly these days is very much under a microscope, and I think we have to be kind of twice in, twice as good in my job. Um, and it just puts a real highlight on, on ethical lawyering. And even if you're being a really zealous advocate and doing everything you can, making sure you have a very clear understanding of the ethical boundaries of, of the law and of your role as a lawyer. And I think that um, HLAB really gave me some a really good foundation on that in a way that some other law students didn't, didn't always get if they didn't spend time thinking about that sort of stuff in the clinical setting. And is there a particular reason that you wanted to join HLAB in the first place? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, this kind of goes back to my point about working across lines of difference. Um, I, I, you know, I'm not the greatest legal mind in the world. I'm never going to, you know, be sitting on the Supreme Court, but I care deeply about um, supporting communities that, that are under-resourced, under-privileged, unre- underrepresented, and to be able to do that with the resources of HLAB kind of full, full-time for, for, for uh you know, whether uh, that's the way we promote it or not, but but really just focusing the last two years of my law school time um, in that space is something I felt very privileged to do, um, and I feel very privileged to do similar things right now. You worked in the domestic violence division. Can you speak a little bit about that and if you ever experienced that or had an opportunity to work or have domestic violence training at HLAB? So I was I was on the housing side at HLAB and and really focused primarily on housing. I spent six months doing um, domestic violence work in Washington D.C. and that was a, a fully localized job here in the district. And it was actually um, I was sent there by the office I work for now. And unfortunately, there's a lot of parallels to particularly hate crime work and and, and police brutality work and domestic violence work, um, namely. These are these are victim-based crimes where I think society generally tends to be a little hesitant to believe victims, um, and also victims are have many 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 good reasons to not want to participate with the legal process. And um, I think that that is something that I, that stood out to me in, in my time as a working in domestic violence law, and it continues to stand out as a civil rights prosecutor. I also saw that you were actually president of HLAB. How was that experience, and and what were some of your favorite moments? Yeah, I mean, I think being president of HLAB is unique because every single person in HLAB is is a leader. You know, I think it's an organization, just given the sort of people that it draws, um, that that everyone is capable of leading uh, the organization or parts of the organization, and it is a student-run organization. So I think that, um, you know, I got some very good advice from past presidents just to basically, like, you're there to support folks and to, you know, find the right processes for the best ideas to come up and to be put into practice and to make sure that, you know, the the school, the, the faculty, um, the clinical advisors are, are supporting that. And it can be challenging at times because sometimes folks have different views of how things should operate. But... Um, I learned a lot from being president of HLAB, particularly just about trying to facilitate other leaders, uh, to be frank. Is there something that you learned in HLAB or a set of skills that has really helped you in your current role as a trial attorney? Yeah, I mean, I'm sure um, 
you know, one thing that may sound cliche, but I, I just cannot emphasize it enough, is just this idea that you can learn from every single human being that you meet. And whether it is, you know, your client, even, you know, the judge opposing counsel, you know, I think of like the worst kind of most annoying landlord lawyers that I had to deal with at HLAB. Um, when I went into those conversations really open to like, I'm going to take something out of this conversation that I can then use to make myself a better lawyer and to kind of have the humility to go into every interaction I have with anyone, um, recognizing that I will, I will be better off if I treat that conversation as an opportunity to learn and to get better at something myself. And that's something that I very much try to carry over into my work now. Um, and I think it has allowed me to learn more about other people and myself, frankly. I wonder if you ever get emotionally exhausted and how you deal with listening to stories of domestic violence survivors, police brutality. How do you let it not affect you in your personal life? Yeah, I think everyone deals with this a little differently. The worst thing they can do is pretend like it's not it's not a real thing. Um, then from there, it really becomes a question of kind of constantly checking in with yourself. I think one thing that is always at the forefront of my mind as a, as a lawyer is that this isn't about me. You know, this is not, I, I am here um, in a kind of client-focused role. You know, at HLAB, my client was, you know, very directly a, a tenant or a former homeowner. Here at the Justice Department, as, as corny as it may sound, my, my client is, you know, the American citizen and, and my desire to do justice. And when I see um, really terrible things, one thing I kind of have to just do is depersonalize it and recognize that I am, I am there to serve others. Um, that said, that's not always possible. I mean, I've, I've most recently spent most of the last year um, working as one of the prosecutors on the Walmart shooting in El Paso. And I have seen, you know, uh, things that I don't think any other, you know, I, I would wish that no other person would ever have to see. And I've met with family members of, you know, people who have lost loved ones in, in, really, in a really heinous act of violence. And that's really hard. And I think what I needed myself was when I had those conversations, um, I just needed some space and I needed some time to, to internalize them. I think, you know, I had conversations this year where, you know, I wasn't ready just to go hop in and, and go into court an hour later or, you know, hop on the next meeting. You know, I needed to, to take a walk. I needed to, to kind of let my mind uh, internalize the things I had heard and then really check in with myself about how I could then help other people and recognize that it wasn't about me and, and the people I was dealing, the people that I was working with were facing, you know, trauma exponentially um, more significant than what I was experiencing just from listening to them talk. That's very insightful. HLAB means a lot of things to different people. It's a very special community. And for you, what did HLAB mean to you? And do you still feel connected to that community even after having graduated? Yes. I mean, HLAB really became kind of my home at law school uh, for my two and three L years. And really the community um, is, is one of the things that meant the most to me and continues to mean the most to me. Some of my best friends in the whole world are people that I met at HLAB and spent time with at HLAB, and they're going to be friends of mine for the rest of my life. Um, and so many of the people that I met at law school that you know, I most respect and most admire were some of my HLAB colleagues. And then just kind of, um, you know, as 
perhaps evidenced by this call, like as you go out into the world and you start practicing as a lawyer, it never ceases to amaze me how many times I just randomly kind of like come across an HLive alum and how there's kind of an instant connection there. Um, and we can kind of immediately relate to, to what some of our law school experiences were and how we've tried to carry those forward in our legal career. What is a piece of advice do you have for current HLAP students? And one thing which I, which I mentioned a little bit earlier is, is recognizing what role you are in at a given time. Um, it is very rare to find a legal job where you can be kind of, you know, the activist and the defense attorney and, you know, work for the, you know, there, there are, you, you sometimes have to make choices. And, you know, for example, if I think about my role now, um, I feel very fortunate to be able to prosecute the cases I prosecute, but, but there comes a sacrifice there. You know, I am a federal prosecutor that limits some of my First Amendment rights, that limits the involvement I can have in certain campaigns, that limits my ability to be kind of more of an outspoken activist. And that's a choice that I have to grapple with every single day. Um, and it's important for me to recognize that that is a choice that I'm grappling with. And I think as people kind of move through their legal careers, it's important to kind of recognize, you know, like, what is what is your lane now? And is that the lane you want to be in? Or do you want to be kind of in a different lane and, and recognize that, that there are sometimes lanes in the legal profession because it is so often kind of client focused? That's extremely valuable insight. I noticed on your LinkedIn that you have an organization listed, Hope on a String. I was wondering yeah. if you could tell me a little bit about that. Um, Hope on a String, I'm, I'm a board member. Um, one of my, uh, it's a nonprofit organization in a rural community in Haiti. Um, one of my best friends from college kind of founded it after the earthquake in 2009. And um, I am a, you know, I'm a biracial man. I have a Caribbean father and I've always cared a lot about you know, kind of the Caribbean aspect of my identity, and I spent some time on the ground at this organization with my friend uh, in Haiti, and I was just blown away by what he had created and just said, you know, whatever you need, I'm here for you, and he asked me to join the board, so I've been on the board for a few years now. That sounds like an amazing organization. Yeah, no, it's a real real kind of grassroots kind of community empowerment organization, and I'm, I'm proud to be associated with it. Since we are in, in the time of quarantine, have you picked up any particularly new hobbies since being at home? I don't know if it's a hobby. My big life development in COVID is that I became a father for the first time. So I have a, uh, a three-month-old baby here, and uh, I've gotten really good at, you know, changing diapers and not sleeping and um, trying to, you know, feed a, a beautiful little thing while he screams his head off. So those are all new skills <laughs> that I've developed, uh, and, and happily so. Oh, congratulations. And definitely thank not you, a hobby. <laughs> definitely <laughs> no. more more a no. full time job. <laughs> yes, but a but a very rewarding one at that.